are really two classes of innovators in San Francisco, one of whom is fairly compensated for their work and one of whom is expected to work in exchange for exposure. You, know, you wouldn't ask your dentist to fill a cavity in exchange for exposure. And so the fact that artists are paid fairly according to the standards of the local economy is hugely problematic. And part of it is because the value of artwork and creative work is not fully recognized in the United States as a whole. Artists is like an endangered species because their habitat is being compromised. You know, there's a, there's no affordable studio space. You know, galleries are shutting down. You know, institutions can't afford to keep curators on payroll. And so basically all of the things that create a healthy ecosystem for the arts basically the equivalent of having a hammer and looking for a nail. You know, oh, I have this great tool. You know, there's this new mixed reality app. What problem can I solve with this mixed reality app? And that is sort of the backwards way to go about it. What you want to do is think, what problems am I trying to solve and what technologies can I use for those problems? Millions of dollars have been put into museum apps since mobile technology became a thing. Why collecting art. I would trust Lynn with an NSA data set before I would trust the NSA with an NSA data set. <laughs> saying a lot. Welcome back to part two of Viewing Art in the Digital Age, a panel discussion that was recorded live from the Battery on January 11th, 2019. I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt, but this week I'm turning it back over to Untitled Art's very first guest host, Ethan Appleby of State of the Art Podcast, who invited Lynn Hirschman-Leeson, Erica Gangsey, and Dorothy Santos in conversation about the ways in which technology affects the way we look at art in the 21st century. We left off the first part of the panel talking about museum models, adaptive technologies such as augmented reality, science fiction, genetic modifications, and importantly, the obstacles that face artists and experimentation in the United States today. On the second half of this panel, our guests dive into a discussion about the conditions and pressures of making art in the Bay Area, home to Silicon Valley. So I'll leave you here with Ethan leading the discussion. Lynn, you you made this comment uh, to Erica that you know there's museums don't have a lot of money here. Well, you said especially in the U.S. Yes. Let's talk about you know how would you describe our visual culture, maybe specifically in in the U.S. and 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 why do you think perhaps there isn't as much of an appetite for arts here, or that why museums don't have the funding that they do abroad? I mean, it's a complicated question. You know, it's a question. We've got time. <laughs> <laughs> Inherently, it's a cultural need, and particular cultures outside the United States absolutely need art, and they're brought up with it being a, a nourishment and a sustenance and a way of 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 life that isn't prevalent in the United States. So, it's, I think that you find a different emphasis towards collecting art towards revering art, towards respecting artists, towards supporting artists. You, you can go into any small village in Europe, and if there's a museum, they support their own artists. You don't find that here. I mean, what is the support in the United States for artists itself, and much less for experimentation? I mean, there really is none. Uh, you know, that, that, that really is the demise of a culture if you're not respecting the creative capabilities of, of what we have as our, as our product and our resource. It's okay if I add. Yeah. But I think also inherent in American culture is, and I'll just 
say it is um, are you gonna be controversial no, possibly <laughs> <laughs> but it's just like an inherent exceptionalism and or pragmatism too it's about either getting things done or it's about being the best and what does that mean it means innovating it means you know disrupting but yet we are in the bay area and the bay area has changed the world Exactly. And I think that the art that comes out of here, I mean, for instance, for myself, speaking for myself, I could not have been doing what I did and was able to develop if there weren't out-of-work programmers. No, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. No, and I agree with that. But I think a lot of it, too, is that you dared to do that. And that's something that I think a lot of people, especially women in the arts, appreciate and admire. Yeah. Well, you have nothing to lose. (laughs) It's true. You know, obviously the lack of government level support for the mm. arts. The arts aren't seen as a vital part of public infrastructure yeah. Yeah. in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, I think that creative work isn't valued. And I've said this so many times, uh, but, you know, there are really two classes of innovators in San Francisco, one of whom is fairly compensated for their work and one of whom is expected to work in exchange for exposure. You, know, you wouldn't ask your dentist to fill a cavity in exchange for exposure. And so the fact that artists are paid fairly according to the standards of the local economy is hugely problematic. And part of it is because the value of artwork and creative work is not fully recognized in the United States as a whole. There's also the sense that San Francisco and the Bay Area is this sort of like untapped or this such high potential of, of collectors, right? Because there's so much money here, but yet no one has been able to break into, I mean, Untitled's here to do that. But I want to continue to explore, I mean, why do you think that is? Like, what is it? I mean, you said that it's a need, you know, abroad, but it's not a need here. Do you have any more thoughts on why that is? And, and then my follow-up question is going to be like, how do we change that? How do we make it a need? That's a big question. (laughs) I think it comes from support and exposure. Yeah. And being able to see the value of the work. I mean, if if, if you're doing new kinds of work, it has to be seen. It has to be written about. You have to really have a vital community of writers Mm -hmm. and of visitors to the work itself. It Mm -hmm. can't just be done here and exported. So part of the... The battle, I think, is to create the places and the commitment and the language for this work to be created and explored and collected. I would refer you to Rennie Pritikin's Prescription for a Healthy Art Scene. What is it? It's a document that he produced, I think, I don't remember when he produced it. While ago. I'm going to say the 90s, but what did it say? It's a whole list. There are like 31 bullets, so I'm not going to remember all of them, but it's everything that you just said. There need to be spaces. There need to be audiences. There need to be writers and critics. There need to be curators. There need to be collectors. It's an ecosystem. It's an ecosystem. Truly. And right now, I think that, you know, because of things, and basically I think of artists as like an endangered species because their habitat is being compromised you know there's a there's no affordable studio space you know galleries are shutting down you know institutions can't afford to keep curators on payroll and so basically all of the things that create a healthy ecosystem for the arts one of the reasons why i moved here from new york 15 years ago is because the creative community seemed to me and proved to be more, you know, community oriented and sort of staunchly anti-capitalist. But I've always sort of wondered whether that was, whether you're staunchly anti-capitalist because you don't have a choice. You know, 
You're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in selling my work, you know. <laughs> but more of a logistical question that came up, I was a part of a convening on open source software for the arts last year. And one of the things that actually came up amongst the artists and the engineers or developers or in the open source community contributors was this, this idea of backwards compatibility, which is when you think about collectors and, you know, not to be on the... Because I, I, I know we're talking a little bit more about, you know, economics right now, or I am, but it's thinking through, and that's a very intentional thing that the artist also has to think about along with the gallery space. If they're showing at a museum, maybe they have to think, do I want this to be shown in a particular way in the future? That's also the differentiation mm-hmm. that when, you know, the whole title of the panel is viewing art in the digital age. So one of the things that people have to think about is that, and, and that's a very intentional decision that an artist makes or not. You know, it kind of relates to the question that you asked to an extent, and it's an experience that has to be had at the moment before it changes, meaning like before the software updates, mm-hmm. before we have to change out all the hardware. And I think that's the reason why I'm talking about this notion of backwards compatibility. Like, can this be recreated? I know at SFMOMA, there was um, someone, I believe Mark Heller was someone who headed up the whole, you know, even you know, recreating some of Lynn's work is like, I'm just using Lynn Lynn as an example here, but it's not to say that the artist has to think about that, but it's one of the conversations that people... you really do. I mean, we migrate our work every three years. Right. And then we keep everything and it becomes almost like an archaeological dig when you go back and look at this this old equipment that's five years old. Exactly. It's completely obsolete. But I think that relates to, you know, this idea of, you know, collection versus archive is... How do we want the aesthetics of the piece to be presented later on? I think you it's know? up to the artist to determine that. Yeah, we, sure. we make uh, we make very cohesive manuals, sometimes 150 pages, Ooh. which, by the way, Frank Lloyd Wright did also for yeah. you know for his work, which Klaus Oldberg did for his work. Mm-hmm. You know, to really think ahead to <laughs> what could happen to this yeah. and how it could be reproduced. Right. How else is technology changing the way people, or how do you see it in the next five years, changing the way people can view art in the digital age from perhaps like, I mean, the idea of viewing it from afar? Technology, you know, do you think it will replace, you know, seeing art in person? You mentioned what a sacred experience it was seeing a piece. So how do you see technology changing the way we view art? It becomes the platform for it. You don't need really museums for many of the, the artworks. Mm-hmm. You don't need to experience them there. That's right in the work itself. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? You could do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. <laughs> it's very similar to, again, I brought up Angela's work where you can, there's a lot of playable media online that you can find through your apps. But one of the generative things that can happen when you go to a physical space uh, whether it's a gallery or an institution such as the SF MoMA, is to be around people, to see different reactions, to have this kind of emotive response, not just from yourself, but from another individual. But again, as Lynn was talking about, I do agree, there are certain considerations that need to be made because you also have disabled patrons who can't always make it out to institutions or museums. And that's another reason why Viewing artwork in the digital age can kind of reach a broader audience in that sense. Or at least that's one of the things or, that I want to say. you know, say to. like Martine Sims' work oh, yeah. for AI work that you right. do, you know, by texting on your phone. Yeah. The work I have at SF MoMA, mm-hmm. Agent Ruby, is the most visited artwork in mm-hmm. the entire, entire collection because you could see it online. You could talk to it online. Speaking. And it's been 
been creating conversations for 14 years. In fact, when Rudolph collected it, there's mm-hmm. something like 80,000 tons mm-hmm. of responses, which then became a collective portrait mm-hmm. of how people around the world were viewing themselves. By the way, when that was launched, I totally remember having my Hewlett Packard heavy desktop <laughs> in my bedroom and talking to Agent Ruby. Okay. And I well, remember well, so and, and no, and I know we still can, but I remember that. That's what introduced me to your work. Agent Ruby is a really interesting example because I don't think that the optimal presentation for Agent Ruby is in a gallery. You know, I think that it's better to experience it, you know, at home and be able to actually do a deep dive that you're never going to do when you're inside an institution and you're with a friend and their feet are tired and they want to go to the coffee bar and, you know, the museum's closing in 15 minutes and there's a guard there and you're just trying to get into a conversation with, you know, with Agent Ruby and really get deep. I mean, that's something that happens better, you know, in your, in your pajamas at three in the morning. Just sorry, asking for a friend. Do you want to just explain what Agent Ruby is? <laughs> Agent Ruby, I started this project in 1995 to make a a character online that you could talk to and interact with or shortly after the internet became accessible. And I worked online, my gathering 18 programmers to finally create the artificial intelligence markup language to create this this AI piece. I had to do a film called Technolust in order to kind of convince people mm-hmm. <laughs> I could do the AI piece because it was yeah. nobody would understand it. But anyway, it's it's an artificial intelligent chatbot. It was the first one that was ever done. Tilda Swinton's in it, and you can talk to her online by going to ancientruby.net mm-hmm. and asking her questions, and she'll answer in, a, in very provocative ways. Mm-hmm. Great. Like I said, I was asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, it's interesting. It's the, you know, I think about video games and computer games inside a museum context. And I think the same thing is true. And I think one of the reasons why institutions have a hard time exhibiting video games is because it's not really, you know, on average, when we've done visitor tracking, it's, you know, horrifyingly low number of seconds that a visitor spends in front of a work of art if they even choose to pause in front of a work of art. You know, something like 10 seconds. And you can't really get... <laughs> a chatbot in 10 seconds. You can't really get a video game in 10 seconds. These are deep dive experiences. And so I think that in the case of a lot of new media and especially participatory media, it's not even that the museum is, you know, obsolete. It's that the museum isn't the optimal venue for it. You know, I will say that, you know, on on behalf of the analog art making community, the V.S. Selman's show cannot be experienced through digital reproduction. You have to be in front of those paintings because she is channeling an intense amount of energy through the pigment onto the canvas or through the pencil onto the paper. And you need to be there and experience the grain. And that is a very, you know, old fashioned, but still very true way of experiencing work of art. So I think there is a sort of bifurcation when you're thinking about people as digital natives and digital immigrants you can almost think about artworks the same way that there are digitally native artworks and then there are artworks that make more sense in person playing off of that and and the idea of the the honeypot and the hammer and the nail (laughs) do you think that technology like vr or ar you know or instagram or others can be this kind of larger honeypot that gets people to 
get intrigued, to get interested, to then be more likely to perhaps see it, in, not replacing seeing it in person, but be, make it more likely for you to go see it in person. And I think our survival depends on it. You know, honestly, you know, using Instagram, you know, figuring out how to use Snapchat, because the thing is museums will develop sophisticated tools to engage visitors with the artwork and you know, tons of, I mean, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars have been put into museum apps since mobile technology became a thing. Collecting art, right? <laughs> but because what I mean, they're trying really to do disturbing. is figure out. Now look who's to, asking the hard questions. Yeah, <laughs> they're trying to figure out how to engage the people with the art once they're in. The yeah, but there'd be more door. art there to be engaged, which would yeah. automatically bring more people. But in. Yeah, anyway, so so anyway, museum mobile technology is this huge industry, and the relative merits of which can totally be debated but you know more often what we find is that visitors are doing what they always do on their phones they're just doing it at a museum and visitors aren't actually really interested in downloading a museum app unless it's the very traditional audio tour <laughs> set and so i think a lot of the time what you need to do is become savvy with the technologies that people are already using and figure out how to insert your message into those technologies which is why something like send me was the texting chatbot or texting bot that worked really well or you know museums that have custom snapchat filters so, so you're surveying your visitors and kind of manipulating what what they have what they come in there with uh surveying not surveilling i always judge a good panel by when you teed up like the next four panels that are gonna be <laughs> done so i've been selfish and i've been asking all the questions are there any questions that you would like to ask each other or to ask the audience here, Ethan turned the microphone over to a few members of the audience who had questions for the panelists. Hey guys, so where is the limit? You know, you guys were talking a lot about biological aspects. I know DARPA's playing around with gene drives, the idea that you can modify the entire genetics of a species. You could encode art into that. You could take NSA data sets and you could make art out of that. So, What was the second part? The second one was you could take an NSA data set and you could turn that into art. So where, as, as we have these new capabilities, how do you set the limits? Why do um, you have to have a limit? I mean, art, art doesn't have a limit. If, it, if it's truly radical in exploring your time, you don't have to have a frame around it. I mean, it leads out into the culture on its own. I would trust Lynn with an NSA data set before I would trust the NSA with an NSA data set. <laughs> <laughs> saying a lot. Example, too, is like I think a lot of people, there was a controversial piece done by Revitel Cohen and Turvan Balin, and where they created a piece, the piece was called Sterile, where they worked with a Dr. Yamada in Japan to create synthetic fish, goldfish that had no reproductive systems. So essentially these 45 fish were considered art objects. And then when they died off, they died off. No one technically wanted to collect them. And if they had a desire to, it's fatalistic. Videotape. It's, they could videotape. Yeah. But it's, there's already a fatalism to that. You know that this goldfish that you collect is going to die. When we think about contours and limits, again, very similarly, I too would trust Lynn with a NASA or NSA data set, but it's, it's why have those limits? It may be controversial, but I think it's also testing kind of the boundaries and limits of what already exists and saying, you know, bringing up these, these ethos and ethics. How do we develop that within these different ecosystems? And artists are the ones to do that. 
I think it's really interesting to think about, you know, that we, we have ethical boundaries that we're willing to impose on an art museum. It was fascinating to see what happened with the Art in China exhibition, which started at the Guggenheim and is now at SFMOMA, shameless plug. Um, you know, in terms of the, without, without the controversial piece, without the controversial piece, exactly. The contra, the controversial pieces were pulled from the exhibition and, you know, the ethical standards are being applied to, Art exhibits where, you know, actually, you know, critical discussions. They're being whitewashed. They're being, exactly, they're being whitewashed. But, you know, we as a society are imposing standards that we don't impose on cosmetics companies. Mm -hmm. They're actually, I think, by imposing limits, and I understand that I'm in dangerous territory here, but by imposing limits, we're actually limiting the level of discussion that we can have. And art is supposed to grapple with difficult topics and mm-hmm. if we're imposing a limit on what we can do i remember there was a show at yerba buena where one of the pieces involved stem cells from all different species that were being sort of lightly undulated back and forth in a warm bath and so they were actually continually creating hybrid chimerical creatures at the microscopic level you know, that, that piece was hugely controversial because you've got a warm bath full of stem cells from all different species inside an art museum. But when you think about, it's only because it's not happening behind closed doors. That's what causes the controversy. And so in a lot of ways, an artist can shine a light on things that are problematic or controversial that are happening behind closed doors all the time. Hi there. I have a question originally for Lynn, but can answer. Um, at the end of your discussion, you were talking a lot about different channels for communicating to audiences. So Instagram or all these different apps. A lot of artists or digital artists, I guess, as we're calling them, that I used to follow uh, were really active in the days of like the early web um, when the web was much more open. And now we see that our attention is more and more on these platforms that are actually closed and controlled by like specific companies and the web is becoming less open. Is there anything that you feel can shift or is there a creative limit that you feel as a result of kind of the shift away from the open web or like an earlier point was made about like backwards compatibility and open source tools because it feels like the following generations like post-millennial are not even really going to websites, right? They're like on Instagram, they're already on a closed platform. So in terms of like limits of expression and, and all of that, what what can we do to kind of keep alive the the creativity from that era of the internet like emerging? Well, you know, something things belong to the era that they're that they're made, and you go beyond that. And there are many other ways, you know, that you kind of camouflage your your, uh, a system of encryption that could have really deeply felt political ramifications. Really, that's the the job of the artist is to bring those places forwards and make change towards planetary survival and and with a, a, a resonance of ethics. You find your tools, you find the things, or else you invent them. You know, you find something that you have to say and find a way to to say them. Just one other thing I'd add is, you know, we focus on digital natives and digital immigrants as if those are the only two 
categories of people that exist, which implies that we live in an explicitly digital world, when in fact, you know, we're all sitting here, there's not a lot of technology going on in this room right now. We're living in an analog world. And so one thing that I like to think about is the idea of an analog immigrant, you know, and maybe the post-millennial, you know, that people, people can actually make art in physical space using readily available tools and you know maybe that then gets photographed and posted on Instagram or something but there are ways to jam the culture that go beyond mm -hmm. jamming specific platforms or specific channels hi thank you all so much for being here and for spending so much time with us Lynn earlier you mentioned glitches uh, glitches and glitch art glitches I, are really important I, I've been very fascinated with them especially yeah. because in a twofold way they're primarily being made by and shared among a generation who have actually never really interacted with VHS tapes, but are discovering their beauty. So it's happening in a decontextualized way. And it also fundamentally points to an error in technology. And that's what people are holding up. So I'm. Well, they, they think it's an error. Right. But so I, I'm very interested in all of your thoughts on glitch art and that aesthetic and also its sort of mass popularity at the moment. I'm just adding to that also what are glitches for the audience, for a friend. <laughs> They're mistakes. They're spaces in between. They're perceived perceived mistakes, right? Something that that uh, isn't coded or kind of virgin taper or coding comes through when it's not supposed to. But often I find that that these things are telling us something about. They're forcing themselves into our consciousness because they have something to say that we're not paying attention to. It's just like I think that failure is just that you're halfway towards success. Nobody ever fails. They continue to find a way towards completion of something. So glitches shouldn't be discarded. They should really be paid attention to. Another reason why glitch art is so popular, just from a conceptual standpoint, is a glitch is that interstitial moment of clarity versus like a darkness. I don't mean to be super philosophical, but I feel like to a, to a large extent, that's the reason why there's a fascination with it. People like to see failure. People like to see the mistakes. Well, on that, <laughs> thank all of you for asking phenomenal questions. This, this is not being done on Facebook Live, so only us have, have witnessed this. But thank all of you for being panelists, really. Thank you guys. Thank you very much. On the occasion of releasing this episode, I called up curator Jennifer Inacio. Hi, uh, my name is Jennifer Inacio. I'm assistant curator at the Perez Art Museum, Miami. I wanted to talk to Jen about the augmented reality sculpture by Miami-based artist Felice Grodin that we presented last December at the Fair on the Beach, in sync with the artist's concurrent augmented reality exhibition at the Perez Art Museum. I asked Jen how she saw how the audience responded to an exhibition that really fused technology with the art, making it an essential part of viewing the work. I think augmented reality or any any form of digital art really uh, builds bridges between these two different worlds and are offering multiple opportunities, not even just art, but even building dialogues between different institutions, the same way that Pam was able to present something at Untitled, or we could present this in Japan, you know, all the other side of the world. It's really enabling these relationships to, you know, moving beyond the physical space. 
As a curator at the PAM, Jen has had plenty of experience watching and gaining feedback from her audience as they visit the galleries. However, with the Augmented Reality Project, she noticed that their engagement was a little bit different. You're seeing the the viewer there with their phone and engaging, you know, tapping on the screen to animate the works, but also moving around it, really exploring the works. I think to me that's the most rewarding experience of this project is because you really get to witness, you know, how the viewers are experiencing it and, and having fun with it. Jen and her curatorial team at the PAM had never worked with the augmented reality technology before, leading to both obstacles and new opportunities. Us not knowing what to do with the technology really made us just, we weren't worried about boundaries or what was possible or whatnot. We were really creative and ambitious because we had no idea of what could and could not be done. So we really just threw our ideas all over. This resonates with some of what Lynn, Erica, and Dorothy confirmed in their panel, that using technology can open doors into new territory that wouldn't have been accessible before. And to echo Jen's statement, build bridges. To end this episode, I want to give a special thanks to Ethan Appleby and the State of the Art Podcast for jumping in as our very first guest host, and also endless gratitude to our speakers who were invited to this panel, Lynn Hirschman-Leeson, Erica Gangsey, and Dorothy R. Santos. Additional thanks to Matt Bernstein at The Battery for hosting this panel and Mnemonic Recordings for producing this episode. And finally, a special thanks to the composer of the original soundtrack you heard at the beginning and end of this episode by Celia Hollander from the score for Madeline Hollander's performance, Mile, first performed at the Untitled Art Fair in Miami Beach, 2015. today's episode, I leave you with a quote from John Cage. Wherever we are, what we hear is mostly noise. When we ignore it, it disturbs us. When we listen to it, we find it fascinating. So I'd like to invite you to keep on listening and think of listening as another way of looking. Keep tuning in this year as we'll be releasing new episodes every month and also debuting new guest hosts. Join me on the next episode for a special tour with curator and Smart Museum of Art director Ali Gass as we visit Solidary and Solitary, the collection of Pamela Joyner and Alfred Jeffrida, recorded from the museum in Chicago. Signing off, I'm your host, Amanda Schmidt, and I hope you'll join us again on the Untitled Art Podcast. Music